0: and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast with me, Pete and I'm here with Stephen Moriarty. G'day, Steve. G'day, Pete. So today, um, another episode on economics, and today we're talking about behavioural or rational and whether economics is more rational or more behavioural. And I suppose more importantly, what does that mean for us as investors and um, whether or not we should consider these things separately or together. So, Steve, do you want us, maybe as an intro, let's talk a little bit about classical economic theory, what that
1: assumes and how that plays out in the real world? The classical or the neoclassical theory has been used for a long time and like a lot of things, um, for example, the efficient market hypothesis, when they fail, instead of sort of going back to the drawing board, a lot of the time what happens is they start to fiddle at the edges in order to keep the the theory alive. And so that's been going on for a fair while in neoclassical I think the the thing that really changed it um, or really brought it to attention was the uh, global financial crisis. And that was when, I, I think we said this last week, you know, the Queen sort of said, well, you know, what happened to you guys? Why didn't anybody tell me about this sort of thing? Basically, because the models didn't have it, you know, a, a, the ability to predict those sort of things, um, mainly because they don't have the finance sector in there. Even before that, Daniel Kahneman is probably the most popular figure in terms of behavioural economics. He won the Nobel Prize, I think it was 2002 or something, and the the surprise was, of course, he's he's a psychologist, he's not an economist. And what he was basically saying was that when people made decisions, they weren't rational. And his idea or the idea of rationality was based on probabilities, right? And so what he was sort of saying was, look, neoclassical economics said we're all these rational, you know, decision makers and we make the sort of rational decision every time. And what Kahneman said was, no, that doesn't really happen because when you look at people's decisions, they make irrational decisions, not rational decisions,
0: yeah, so um, I guess good example, if uh, after Christmas you're going to do dry January, you go to the supermarket, you think, well, okay, I probably shouldn't walk down the, the grog aisle because I will may succumb to the temptation. And as a parent, I have the same thing. I, I know if I take the kids with me to the supermarket, if I walk down the lollies aisle, it'll be, Dad, Dad, can we get you know some marshmallows or something i guess unfortunately advertisers know this all too well so when i get to the checkout counter there's Fredo frogs there and everything else it used to be the same with smokes although that's not allowed anymore yeah uh, so i think that that is one of the challenges is is that we're incentivized to behave irrationally um and, and we know we're likely to succumb now i guess I mean, that's just an example of an individual succumbing to less rational behavior. But I guess it's a bigger issue when you get um, whole groups of people thinking the same way. One of the things I've noticed over 20 odd years of observing real estate cycles, one of the hardest things for people uh, and one of the biggest themes is it's very hard to watch other people getting rich. I've seen this just over and over again, that people can behave rationally through certain parts of a cycle, but there is really nothing worse than seeing the next-door neighbour or the guy at work starting to become wealthier than you. And I think that that is definitely one of the factors which
1: tends to drive a cycle. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's probably the main one. Um, envy envy is a fantastic generator of behaviour or motivator of behaviour. Yeah, I mean, you know, we know in, in stocks and in property markets that, the 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 idea of um, groupthink is really really prevalent and again it's sort of based on you know most of those ideas about the rational you know utility maximizers predicated again on stuff like perfect information whereas you know nobody's going to i mean if you if you ever invested, investigated a decision about, you know, I might buy an investment property or, you know, I might buy some stocks. I mean, you could go around the bloody world for, you know, years and years before you actually made a decision about whether it was rational to do or not. So what we do is, and this is what Kahneman talked about, you know, the idea of these things called heuristics, right, the the rule of thumb. And what's the rule of thumb? Oh, well, everybody else is buying property, so it looks like probably a good idea. And the guy next door bought property and now he's driving a Mercedes-Benz and he's telling me how rich he's getting. You know, we've got the same thing at the moment in markets, particularly the US stock market, you know, with GameStop and all those sort of things. Yeah. So they're all, you know, none of those, none of those investors look entirely rational. It's basically just everybody sort of following what everybody else is doing and that's how you sort of get the part to groupthink.
0: Yeah, so I guess one of the things to watch out for, I think, is perverse incentives. So to take the the property example, you know, if you if you've got an advisor who helps people buy property in a certain city, you know, say for the, the sake of argument, Sydney, they there would never be a bad time to buy in Sydney. And you know, we we kind of know that. We've known that over the years, but it, it wouldn't matter if prices had doubled in three years, it would still be, you know, there's still time, you know, room to grow. And I think that there is a bit of that in financial services as well, some advisors are incentivized to have people invested fully at, at all times. And as we said right back at the beginning of these series, we're not here to uh, to bag fund managers or finance, finance professionals, but sometimes the incentives are such or even mandates are such uh, that investments, certain investments have to be made at all times or allocations. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's definitely one thing. To watch out for, because you might reach a different conclusion if you're looking at your exposure just independently.
1: Part of it, and like you say, we're not here to you know to to bag the industry. A lot of them are trying to do the best they can and advise clients. But again, it's that you get back to this problem where they're using a flawed model, and it's the same in markets where you know there's all this talk about the efficient market hypothesis. What you see is that over time. It doesn't work, and it, be, it it starts to become more and more flawed. As I said at the start, what they do is they sort of say, oh, well, there's a strong model and a sort of warm model and a, a weak model. Um, the reality is that the underlying assumptions are incorrect. Again, you see it for the connection between the economy and markets because people... but There's this old argument about, well, you look at the economy... And that's what the market, the market is driven by the economics, right? Whereas what they seem to say or what has been raised is, no, 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 it's actually the other way around. The stock market drives the economy. So there's a whole raft of sort of different views about it. You know, it gets to this thing about, you know, the economy in terms of macroeconomics, um, you know, because, again, you find that. These these economic theories have a really good run for a a certain amount of years, but the longer they go, the more you see the flaws in them. And then people start searching for the new, you know, type of ideas like behavioral investing. Why do they do that? Because we keep looking back, going, they keep telling us this is what people should be doing, but people are not doing it. So, in other words, it's not a really good reflection of reality. Like, let me give you an example. Peter Lynch. Um, you know, the famous investor who made, I think it was like 29% for 13 years or something, you know, he said, oh, you know, if you spend more than 10 minutes of your time on economics than the economy, then, you know, you're wasting seven minutes or something, i.e., oh, well, there's not that much of a a connection between the economy and companies. But, you know, we, we know there is, but the problem is trying to work out whether it's a rational Connection or an irrational one, and as we know, that's how you get the market cycles. You know where property booms or stocks boom and then they collapse, and that's the problem because the rational model says, "Oh no, 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 that those sort of things don't happen." And it's like, man, it happens all the time. It happens every ten years.
0: Yeah, well, that that ties back, I think, uh, to something we we've spoken about before, and that's um, uh, Peter Lynch. was a a big factor was the market cycle itself. And um, I I think, you know, this is one of the the reasons we talk about asset allocation, market cycles, and also for for individual investors, how ETFs have changed the landscape somewhat because you can spend hours and hours or weeks investigating companies, but actually the the bigger factor uh, determining your returns may well simply be the point at which we're at in the market cycle. I think uh, you you mentioned an important point there, the financial crisis and the uh, lack of policy uh, reaction beforehand and then the regulation afterwards. Uh, Obviously, uh, governments can act in certain ways to influence behaviour, and I think this is becoming more and more notable and therefore important. Um, So I I think, um, I mean, sort of nudge economics has been around for a long time. And a good friend of ours, actually, um, Stephen Kukulis of the Labour Party, was always a big advocate of plain packaging on cigarettes because it could influence behaviour and it has done successfully. Um, I think you, you mentioned there the financial crisis, which was um, essentially driven by a credit gap and then overinvestment in some asset classes and so on. Um, so the credit cycle is becoming increasingly important for investors to take note of because it has such a big influence on everything that's going on. But I think there are other areas as well that probably may need some attention. You mentioned um, Robin Hood and bringing new investors into the market, but that's that's essentially akin to gambling. And we've known for a long time that governments have to put out gambling adverts to discourage people because, as we've seen on the pokies and elsewhere, uh, people become addicted and rational behavior just goes out the window.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, again, that underlying assumption that we're all rational. I'm being a bit harsh, but what the, you know, they, they never said that it's a, an accurate. They sort of say it's an approximate reflection of reality. The problem is that it's getting worse and worse in terms of every sort of solution that's proffered to a problem um, in a lot of cases actually makes it worse. There's that famous old saying, you know, the economists have predicted eight of the last five recessions or something, you know, which is a a little bit of a standing joke. But, again, you've got to get back to the point where you say, well, is the assumptions and is the model working? Um, And so, like you said before, when we, you know, we help people and coach clients, we don't talk about specific sort of models. We talk about the broader principles because, it's easy just to put numbers into a discounted cash flow model and go, oh well that's the that's what's going to be the outcome when it's not actually the the way it sort of works. It gets a little bit difficult when you apply one model of rationality to everybody um, when clearly we know there's behavioral differences and there's personality differences. so it's really difficult to say, we can use this one idea and, you know, put it right across finance and economics when in actual fact we now know that it's not really that successful at predicting what's going on.
0: Yeah. So I guess at the time of uh, speaking, we've just come off the back of a a pretty um, wild couple of weeks in markets. So you mentioned um, the, the GameStop uh, I don't even know what to call it, debacle uh, with uh, people uh, piling in to try and uh, suck it to the hedge funds and then uh, everything going into reverse. Uh, I think um, one of the, the phrases or or quotes that you picked up on in, a, in an earlier episode is that the market valuations uh, through the cycle can be right most of the time, but, but investors en masse tend to be wrong at the top and wrong at the bottom. And the importance of looking for those mispricings. I I saw this week uh, in the US that the the price to sales ratio and sales is not really a metric uh, you can easily manipulate, unlike earnings, that the sales kind of are what they are. And the ratio is now, I think, 2.9 times for the US market, which uh, we went above two once before during the tech bubble, um, 99, 2000. But we're on a whole other planet now. Yeah, I mean, you can make the argument that earnings might recover and vaccinations will be rolled out, but uh, it's, it's just intriguing to notice how there's very little uh, pushback from the financial commentary as to whether it might be a bit risky to be getting into a market when valuations are on essentially another planet from what we've seen before. And the CAPE ratio is a little bit different at 35, but most of the metrics seem to be pointing in the same direction. But so, so what's driving that? Is it simply perverse incentives or is it some kind of recency bias because um, and I think actually it's probably not a bad lead-in. Talk to us a bit about ergodicity and how people are impacted by they may be cautious based on past events or aggressive based on
1: what they've experienced to date. If you look, and this is the, what we do in our program, you know, where if you show people market cycles, it becomes bleedingly obvious that there's, you know, good times and bad times to be in the market, then the extension of that is, well, what can I use to indicate that I'm, I'm near the top or near the bottom? And that's how we use the Cape the Ratio, which is a really simple way to sort of understand where you are in the market cycle. The problem, I think, Pete, is that like everything, the perverse incentives are there on everybody's side but it's it's you know if you say the long-term cape ratio is 17 the market's at 35 or 36 rationally you'd go well jesus that's not a really good time to be in the market i need to get out of the market but what happens is there becomes this rationalization but by the people who are the quote experts and You know, there's only a few of us who are prepared to put our money where our mouths are and sort of say, look, the market's crazy. I don't know when it's going to crash, but it's probably going to crash. That's according to history. That will be um, by every financial advisor or fund manager who's, you know, let's be honest, that's how they make their money. So it's not in their interest to say, look, things have gone absolutely crazy Um, it's rational to actually stand aside and wait for the market to settle. The move from behavioural economics, which has been fairly, you know, popular, um, nudge economics and that sort of thing, this is again where when you go into the assumptions and you look at the, the, uh, the process, that's where it's then it's starting to show that it's not correct. And the new one is this thing called ergodicity right? Ergodicity, um, ergodic economics. And so what it's saying is another step closer, I I think anyway, to reality, because what it's saying is, look, and this is what you and I talk about all the time. There's a static view that says, look, out of all the investors, you put them together and it's an average 8% return. That's what you should expect. Now, the problem is you're not all of the investors, you're only one of the investors. So the argument is saying, well, hang on, are you the 16% or the zero or the 20% or the minus four? So what ergodicity is saying is you can't use this one-off, you know, oh, you'll probably get around 8% return over the long term because the markets, when you look at them, don't actually give you that return. They give you a lot higher or a lot lower. Again, this is where you find that you know rational models don't actually work, or they don't take account of reality. And when you think about it, it would be you know again, I'm not sort of want to diss on people, but the reality is there's not a, there's times when it's bad to be in markets.
0: You've, you've mentioned a couple of uh, really interesting and important points there, so. Yeah, it's funny how uh, people can be impacted by past experience because I, I think um, my own uh, grandfather lost a stack of money with um, uh, I shouldn't say the name, but one of the the big uh, Australian pension funds, and uh, in particular, there was a, a big stock market crash nineteen seventy three to four, I think, and that, that basically impacted his view of, of finance forever. You know, and uh, so I guess previous experience tends to have a big um, impact on people's behavior, and I think we're seeing that a lot now There's a lot of people who've just got into markets in the last year or two, and uh a lot is being based on recent experience but um yeah, the question I wanted to look into there is I guess by inference what we're saying is you could potentially do better by looking at your own individual circumstance yeah. and managing your own money accordingly rather than going to an expert. So I recently read a brilliant book by Morgan Housel, The, the Psychology of Money, and I, I actually recommend everyone should buy a copy of that because unlike a lot of financial tomes, it's, it's accessible to everyday people. It's not excessively long. It's just 20 short ideas and chapters Uh, But one of the really interesting points he mentioned there is that personal finance and investing is probably the only field in the world where a a know-nothing individual can actually achieve better results than um, a so-called expert, because the way we deal with money is so irrational. And one of the hardest things for people is to avoid getting sucked into greed and avarice and envy. And the people who can avoid doing that often end up with the well, the the richest person in the graveyard, essentially, because um, that they can stick with that basic principle. Um, yeah. So, I, I guess that's really um, it's not really a question so much as a discussion point. Is this where individuals, by assessing their own circumstances, can actually do do better than following professional advice in adverted commerce?
1: Yeah, I think the we often talk about personalities. And the reason why that's important is because the way that you invest and the way that I invest is different. These days you're sort of pigeonholed as in, oh, you're 58, right, well, you should have a lot of bonds and not many stocks. Oh, you're 35. Oh, well, you should have a lot of stocks and not many bonds. Um, My argument has always been, well, first of all, let's figure out what your personality type is. And the reason why that's important is because, we know generally by using you know, proxies like the CAPE ratio of what the returns are going to be. Now, they're not going to be perfect, but they're going to be fairly good or accurate over the, the next 10 years. It doesn't really matter whether you're 35 or whether you're 55. If the returns are going to be good, you probably should have more money in the market. That's not a thing based on the rational sort of models that are used in like in the efficient market theory and stuff and so the sort of idea is you've got to be more specific than a lot of these models are built for and so like you say you're better off looking at your own position and understanding that and so to tie it back to the rationality stuff you know, you get all these these really salute these simple solutions. Oh, you're overweight. I oh, will just don't eat too much. You know, it's like oh right, that's really bloody helpful. You know, oh you're an alcoholic. I oh, will just don't drink. Um, oh, you like chocolate. Well, we'll just don't eat it. Those sort of things sound really simple. The complexity about why we do um, things that we do and our behaviour is a really really big difference between everybody. And so you think about it this way: you and I are the same sort of personality type but we have a different sort of subtype right so you're more prudent in terms of for example buying clothes or something right whereas i might say i got no problem with knocking over 300 bucks on a hugo boss shirt you might say oh jesus mate that's like really crazy
0: what are you <laughs> trying to say steve like...
1: <laughs> <laughs> you got to
0: try I'm, <laughs> Um, I'm sitting here in my uh, Noosa Springs uh, (laughs) golf body warmer. It's not exactly a fashion
1: show. (laughs) What I'm saying is it it gets back to what's actually rational because for you, you might look at my spending, Steve, that's like crazy. That's a waste of money, whereas I might look at your spending and go, no, 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 Pete, you're being irrational, you know. So, again, it gets back to that thing about being more and more specific and looking at your own circumstances, you know, risk preferences, your own timeline. And because everybody's different, you can't really use a model that is basically a ref- that trying to reflect a one-size-fits-all.
0: Yeah, so that's where the Enneagram assessment that we do and send us an email if you want to get an investment map um, is, is so enlightening uh, because even people with the same personality type, might land on two different conclusions and also personal personal circumstances uh, come into play. I mean it, it take me as a case in point. No, nobody would ever design a an investment portfolio like mine. I've got properties in London, but I've got properties in Sydney and Australia and it it but it suits me because uh, you know my circumstances are I spend half my time in Europe. You know people have said to me in recent years well you, you you know you should maybe get into cryptocurrencies or you know you should reweight your portfolio this way or that way and uh, they they may well be right from a, a rationality point of view but uh, i've i've thought a lot about this and i've just taken stock and i've thought well you know i'm i'm going to do what suits me best even if it's not necess- you know we talk about classical economic theory uh, rational profit maximization but uh, I, I think you know my current strategy will seem see me with a more than comfortable uh, retirement and end game, and it's fine for me, but it may well be completely irrational for somebody else.
1: yeah you I mean Buffett is the is the prime example you know like here's a guy who's operated for probably what seventy five years as a as an investor, has made an absolute mozza, has a fantastic you know like fifty years where he's compounded at twenty odd percent. And yet, according to the efficient market hypothesis, he shouldn't like exist. When you look at him, he's that perfect example of a of a person who said, "I know my own circle of competence, and I stay within that." And now, the benefit, the you know, one of Buffett's circles pretty big in that sense because he's learned a lot from modeling that's gone wrong, and so he's adjusted. He's made a better attempt at reflecting reality and knowing his own limitations rather than just accepting a model that everybody's, you know, a rational maximi- um, maximizer. I mean, he's got lots of experience and stuff, but all of that comes in. And again, to tie it back to the front, you know, the problem is these models have been going along for, you know, 100 odd, 150 years. And the reality is that they don't really they don't really do that well. It would be sort of like using the physics professors saying we're going to use the old model, even though we know it doesn't work. We'll just try and bang it around a bit and you know rework it. The fact is that it, it's not working, and therefore it's actually dangerous to investors to assume that that's the way things actually work that you know it's all rational and if you look at just to finish off if you look at the the current state of the markets what the models say is well if you're all rational then the price is the accurate reflection of the price well we know that's garbage so you know we know there's market bubbles and the the actual rational investor is the one who says this is crazy. I'm going to stand on the sidelines. It's the irrational ones that get caught.
0: Yeah. So the circle of competence. That's a that's a really good point, actually. And uh, um, I, I think I learned quite early on that even though I really enjoyed the process of analysing balance sheets and companies, I wasn't necessarily all that good at it. I think uh, there's a lot more to valuing a company than just understanding current year profits and and current. The current financials, which are in fact a historical document anyway, yeah. and I, I think I quite quickly took me some time, but I eventually realised that, that that wasn't the best use of my time. My Property cycles I've got a pretty good handle on, and I, it, I mean, it's not much more complicated now than uh, looking for markets where everybody says that you know it's, this is the you know doom and gloom end of the world for Geelong. You know that was one. One that got on my radar in 2014, you know, last one out from Geelong, switch off the lights, and I yeah. thought, well, that that's a pretty good indication that now might be the time to get in and, and buy a property there. And it's 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 not a whole lot more sophisticated than than that, but it's something I can do and I understand, and it works. It works for me. So uh, so there's a few things to pay attention to. I think one is clearly the credit cycle because that governments and policymakers now are intervening on um, irrational behavior or what they perceive to be irrational behavior, and they're managing the flows of credit up and down through the cycle. So that's one thing to have an awareness of. Also, that market valuations can be sort of right most of the time, but they can be periodically very irrational. Uh, One of the, the biggest things I've heard a lot about in the last 12 months, is that low interest rates justify yeah. high stock market valuations. But it's it's an interesting point, because over in uh, Great Britain, where we've had zero interest rates for a dozen years, um, the valuation of the market might be, say, half what it is in the US. So that itself contradicts the concept that a, a low interest rate always will justify a high valuation. So my, I guess my concern with that is that Not so much because I don't have exposure to US stocks, but it's more the US driving the cycle for the rest of the world. So I think the concept that the crowd can be wrong at the top and wrong at the bottom is really, really important to understand before you go 100% in stocks
1: right now. Yeah, yeah. I think the point to take away, Pete, from my perspective is this. We started out with neoclassical economics as, you know, we're all rational, and I think we can all pretty well agree that that's not right. We moved to behavioural economics, but it's also got some flaws as well, and we're now moving, albeit very slowly, to this thing about ergo, uh, ergodicity. The important part of that is is really simple. You have to first of all think about where you are in the cycle, and we, we come back to this all the time. The reason why is because if you realise that the long-run average of CAPE is 17 and it's currently at 36, then the the truly rational response is not to say, oh, yeah, but this time it's different, like, you know, the advisors and the fund managers, oh, there's still time to grow and all that sort of stuff. It's really to say a rational person would generally get to the point of, of saying after a little thought that it's probably time to be prudent But the flip side also works, as you say, when it's at the bottom, the rational person would say, well, look, over a long timeline, this is actually probably a good time to invest. The models, they're not dynamic models. They're static models that continue to look at snapshots in time rather than saying, yes, the the market does get crazy, and, yes, there are times that you should actually be out of it.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Because I think, actually, we could probably justify a whole other episode on ergodicity. And I think, you know, certainly this is one thing I've seen in real estate is that, well, I've always done X and X has always worked, so I should do more of X, which it which may be, you know, there may be a grain of truth in it, but you also need to have an awareness of history, momentum versus mean reversion and market cycle. So I think that's a good place to wrap it up. We've got a couple more episodes to go on this series on economics. So, Uh, we'll uh, look forward to joining you next time around and uh, cheers steve and uh, hopefully at some point in this millennium i'll get back into queensland and we can do one of these in the studio okay good to catch up mate cheers cheers thanks everyone thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book low rates high returns just visit www.news.com lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers.